Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. With our top story, shall we? And a key question, is a global manufacturing slump putting a reality check on this weekend's trade truce across Asia and Europe, manufacturing PMIs sticking in contraction territory? For an original take, I would say I'm pleased to say that joining us in the studio is Carl Weinberg, High Frequency Economics Chief Economist and founder. Good morning to you, Carl. Good morning, John. I know you've got a different take on this. You think the PMIs through the year have been somewhat misleading. Just walk us through the thinking well, over at high frequency at the moment, Carl. Let's just take a deep breath, all right? Markets PMIs are new and they're not statistically tested. They can't be. They're only 12 years old. So to put full credit, to put full belief, confidence in, in what they're saying is a mistake. You really want to look at the trusted indicators, the ones that have been around for a long time, like Germany's IFO index, like uh, the EC's European Commission's uh, economic confidence indices. And they've been signaling an economic downturn and an industrial downturn for over a year now. It's been right there for everyone to see. And market, meanwhile, has been above 50, and they've been saying, well, the economy's been growing, when the hard data are showing us that it's not. So industrial, to me at least, to our readers at High Frequency Economics, industrial recession in Europe is not news, all right? It's an ongoing story. It's not a problem. It's a fact. And the question we're talking about is when is it going to end? And there's no sign of it from indices that we trust, like the IFO index, the European Economic Confidence Index, Japan's time out this morning down or it's been down for over a year now all right just have to look at the hard data and the surveys that are tested to see that that's been the case there has been somewhat of a divergence through various economies between what is happening with manufacturing and what is happening with services Europe is a fantastic example of that we haven't seen much side of a bleed through from a really soft manufacturing sector into a somewhat resilient services sector what do you see at the moment Carl well the risk of course is that services are to some extent dependent upon industry all right industry subcontracts out services right the big factory has a services company run its cafeteria and clean the factory floors so that a downturn in industry is important even though industry is only a, a relatively small part of of the picture. So uh, the question we're seeing right now is that growth overall is coming down. Employment growth is slowing. We'll be looking for that in releases this week from Europe. We saw a little bit of it in uh, Japan uh, last week. And we're looking for services to, con- to slow down in parallel with industry bringing GDP down to a halt or possibly even a contraction. Can monetary policy in its aloneness fix this? In Europe, absolutely not, for a number of reasons. Reason number one is that the monetary uh, stimulus that has been given to Europe by the ECB over the last five years has not been transmitted into the economy because banks aren't lending. Number two, monetary policy has stopped out. The ECB, despite Mr. Draghi's, uh, I'll call it bluster, all right, has very few of any tools well, left available to use. But critically, and Carl, this is where your expert, is monetary policy stopped out across all of the Pacific Rim. I mean, forget about major players like Japan. Is it stopped out in Singapore? Look at the Australian shock over the weekend of the new low rates, John. In Australia, the I mean, Italian two-year under 2% uh, this morning. But is monetary policy stopped out in Australia or uh, 
Singapore. Nope. There are exceptions. Australia is certainly one of them, but even they're down to one and a quarter percent on the cash rate, and their bond yields are at historic lows. You know, when you get bond yields down lower than they've ever been before, or you get them lower than inflation, you get borrowing rates below inflation, money is now free. And when money is free and the economy doesn't grow, you've sort of reached the limit as to what monetary policy can do. I think that uh, the RBA governor, uh, Philip Lowe, has joined voices with Mario Draghi, has yeah. joined voices with all the central bank governors, <clears throat> saying it's time for fiscal policy to add something to this. Fiscal policy is the missing link. Carl Weinberg, High Frequency Economics uh, with us. This is with futures up 32, Dow futures up 253. How does an economist like you interpret a bull market in equities, the VIX 13 Point nine three. How? What's the prism of equity valuations that you see? Well, what are the alternatives, Tom? Right, you look at bond yields, all right, and they're not very attractive. You go to Europe, and you have to pay the government to hold your money safely for a year or two or three or five. All right, you have negative interest rates, so uh, the, the alternatives are not particularly attractive uh, to equities right now. So a lot of money is—it's a wall of money being funneled into it all. So I think the key question for us, Tom, through the week is, are you willing, do you have the tolerance, the stomach to sit through and look through the weaker data that might come in the coming months? Do you have the stomach to sit through and look through well, the weaker revisions to earnings guidance that you with, may get in the coming months as well? Starting with Jobs Day on Friday, the a celebration of the uh, colonies in the War of the Rebellion that happened in 1776 is on Thursday. I'll be working Friday. Are you in Friday? I will be working Friday. Oh, you, oh we're it's both pay, here, tag job, team? It's Jobs Day. It's Jobs Day. John Tucker, will you be here as Biscuit Demand? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. We're all going to be here, we'll folks, be on for Friday. Payrolls Friday. So, Carl, let's talk about that. A lot of people are worried that in the coming months we will get worse data. We will get negative earnings revisions for some of these companies, some of the large mega caps here in the United States. Is that something you anticipate, something you set to see happening in the next coming months? Well, um, the, the, the profit picture is complex, but certainly the macroeconomics don't seem to be supporting growth of profits. That's about as far as we can go at high-frequency economics. On the employment side, all right, well, we have a very mixed picture in the United States right now, and this Friday's report has particularly big significance because we've got those bad numbers behind us, and the question is, what kind of numbers lie ahead of us? The weakness in the labor market uh, are, 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 has not been confirmed by the weekly claims data. So our chief U.S. economist at High Frequency Economics, Jim O'Sullivan, is saying the jury is still out on what's really happening in the labor market, whether we've had some aberrational reports or whether we have a, a new trend. So we're watching, uh, we will be watching not yeah. only the employment report, but also the weekly claims data. 160,000, John Farrell, is our Monday number on non-farm payrolls. That's what What's we're interesting, for. that'll get tweaked over the next couple of days, a synthesis of 30 or 50, whatever the number of economists is. What do you, uh, you think it comes down like to 155 from 160? Look, we've been know. told again and again and again that we can't yeah. keep up the 200K month after month after month. But Carl, we've actually sustained a really decent pace of jobs growth in America. Is that something you can see continuing at the moment? Well, you know, it can only continue so far because the unemployment rate has a three-handle on it, and it, it can't go down forever. And this, of course, if we just take a deep breath and look backward, why did the Fed hike rates and tighten monetary conditions to begin with? It was because it was concerned that at the current rate of employment growth that we would run out of workers in, in a due course and lead to an inflation episode. So to some extent, a slowdown in growth 
and the slowdown in jobs is what the Fed really wanted to see. What's unexplicable right now, what we don't have a good story for, is why it's taking so long for wages to respond. And we're expecting a little bit of an uptick in the wages component, but not enough to keep the Fed happy. Quick final question, Carl. Anything about the weekend that's changed anything for you and the team at High Frequency? No, I mean, uh, President Trump got what he wanted. You know, he got the talk started again. But uh, the Chinese really gave up nothing, right? It was total concession on the part of the U.S. Well, they just agreed to come back. I looked, what was it, 2 a.m. Saturday morning? I looked at my phone and said, I don't believe what I'm looking at. Well, what were you looking at, all right? The Chinese agreed to come back to the table, all right? They were away from the table, all right? And Trump went there to ask them to come back to the table, all right? So when you have that dynamic, all right, the question is, what do you have to give up? So he gave up some degrees of freedom on tariffs. He gave up some of the restrictions on Huawei. And the Chinese said, okay, we'll come back to the table. Then we'll buy more soybeans. But though he didn't, there was nothing specific. And the Chinese press has yet to report anything coming out of that meeting in terms of Thank you. This is an important interview for anybody on Global Wall Street, and we can dovetail it right into uh, the Brookfield, Genesee, Wyoming. That's real estate buying a train company. Robert Profusek does a quarterly visit with us. He is with Jones Day, but that barely describes his history of actual normal size transactions. I would go back, of course, to the important transaction of Continental and United. The airline business in America is all by Profusek's fault, and he joins us uh, this morning. Uh, Explain the difference in your world of Jones Day to mega deals versus the actual deals that never make the headlines. Well, there are a lot of deals uh, in this last quarter, in particular, that didn't that are not stillborn. I don't think they're just not happening yet. And one of the thing the thing that you've been talking about so much all morning about the uncertainty of everything, that's been the main factor. Um, there, there is a an and there is, a, I think, not a crisis, but there, there's a fair amount of confidence. There's not a crisis of confidence, but there's a fair amount of concern among CEOs right now. Yeah, with Chart of the Week last week, John, this is while you were gone on your sabbatical. Morgan Stanley with a chart of business confidence. Yeah, I saw that. Stunning. I saw that. What I don't know what you I saw d- that? I saw the chart. I don't know what the inputs into the chart are, but we've seen the C-suite confidence on various survey indicators roll over. Bob, I know many investors that are struggling to make an investment decision with a time horizon longer than five seconds because of this trade story. How difficult is it right now for the C-suite to have the confidence to execute on a big transaction? Well, it it is difficult because uh, on a big deal, um, companies and their directors certainly know that there's a potential for criticism. Look at Anadarko right now with <clears throat> um, what what's gone going with, on with Occidental. Um, and you're making long-term decisions in a in a difficult environment. Now, can uh, people see through the fog of uh, all this stuff? Sure, sometimes. And there are plenty of deals that were announced that are, that that uh, have been well received uh, in the marketplace. Um, but we're in a difficult environment right now, and so you know, lots of directors are urging caution when the CEO comes in and says, "I got this great idea." But one thing is, we sh- we shouldn't overlook that lots and lots of deals are still getting done. Um, lots of them. It's down on a year-on-year basis, but still, they, the market is very active right now. There's always two extremes to every 
conversation. At one extreme, it's a C-suite that doesn't have the confidence to do anything. At the other extreme, Patrick Drahi slapping a 61% premium on Sotheby's and a billionaire takes the public company private. This is already a company that is, by definition, quite toppy and therefore this guy comes in and takes it private. And then some people, the lazy analysis here, and from me, from the outside looking in, the easy argument to construct is this feels toppy. Bob, is the truth just somewhere in between that things are still okay and transactions are getting done? Oh, sure. There's lots and lots of deals getting done. If, I, I, don't, I haven't seen the numbers yet, but my guess was uh, going in this weekend, a number of deals basis be down 15% for the first six months, something like that. But that's still yeah. on a on a basis on a base that's huge. There are eleven, twelve thousand deals a year that get done. So it's not like this isn't like two thousand nine or something like that right. where there's no capital, there's no anything. It's just that people are more cautious. Right. There's it's like it's like the equity markets. It's it's no real. Well, let me not ask really you this, Bob. Here's a quick key question: If the Federal Reserve cuts interest rates, if borrowing costs go lower, does that change anything in the decision-making process it, of any of these guys? Not really. It changes the math and it makes modeling easier. I mean, like you know, it, at these we're at ten years at around hovering around two hundred, as you mentioned. You know, that's that's almost free um, yeah. when you think about it. And the uh, the debt capital markets beyond the bank markets, you know, they, they, they were difficult at the year end when the equity markets were difficult, but they're great right now. The desperation in healthcare seems unique. And I know it's, you know, Washington and legislation. I know there's AbbVie, Abbott Labs, AbbVie Pharmaceuticals and Botox, whatever they took out. I can't remember the name right now. Allergan. Allergan, excuse me. Uh, and there's Aetna and, you know, that whole blow up as well. Is it a rational industry right now? Is healthcare a rational business? Well, it's a business that's got a lot of, you know, it's under a lot of pressure. It's a, it's a, in the vortex of politics. It's got all these yeah. things to deal with. Yet, you know, when you look at the contribution to the to the economy of this country, it's huge. It's a huge part of the economy. Did you see I didn't know the name of Allegan? Because, Are you pretending that you don't get Botox? <laughs> you try no, hard. When, when you were gone on your sabbatical, this was a source of Can we just get well. this out of the way? But, Do you know how many people wrote to me last week and said, Tom keeps banging on about you being on vacation oh, and yeah. it's given you a really hard time? You've had more vacation than me this year. That was my first week off of the year. Really? That was my first week it, off it, of the year. I, I would, John Tucker, I would have never guessed that. There's a Tom Keen vacation index. Have do you, you remember last following? summer when Tom missed every single payrolls Friday? Oh, yeah. oh, I did. I do. I he did. skipped every payrolls Friday I tried through to. the whole of summer. Yeah, well, I just actually arranged things so that doesn't happen, now, including now cleared, this Friday. Now, now we've cleared things up. You can get back okay. to the conversation. Tell us about the law business right now. Are you having trouble retaining young Turks at Jones Day? No, it's a, it's, it, 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 it really hasn't changed. Um, the, the business is good. There's lots and lots of, I mean, the, the, the quality of the people coming out of law school. Yeah. I hear it's stunning. I, I, when I think about what I have been able to compete in that environment, I'm not exactly. I I mean, they, so. And they all speak four languages, yeah. right? Yeah, and their, their resumes are fabulous. Um, but uh, you know, the law business it's not you know it's not like going to a startup tech company or something like that. But it, that's actually the benefit. It's stable. And when you come out of a big time university with tons of debt. You yeah. know, you can pay that down. You can, you can get gainfully so employed. Yeah, and all yeah, that. it's a good business. Tell us about the dynamic of Jones Day in Washington and all of legal in Washington. Is it gearing up for 2020? Is it stable? What's the dynamic uh, among 
legal lobby in Washington. Right well, now. we don't we don't participate in the political side of things. We don't have a lobbying practice per se. But yeah, I mean, you know, just the part of the the, the hysteria of everything that goes on today. I guess it's born by the media. No, right. no offense, but it, it just it gets in your face. There's tremendous amount of activity. As you there. know, John, outside the St. Regis Bar in Washington, You're there's that long vertical room. It looks like an office of Jones Day. There's so you are responsible for hysteria getting... in every single bar that you walk into. That's true as well. Have you ever been for a drink with Tom, Bob? Uh, actually, actually, I've been once. Yes. Yeah. Did it get messy quite quickly? Yes. <laughs> I, I never, I, ne I don't even try keeping up. Right. The drinks start coming and I stop. I just stop and then I walk away very quickly. It's um, an experience. Is it's that what an, it experience, is? It's an experience, I would say. Hey, Bob, Let thank it, you. Yo, thank you so much. Bob Profusek with us is a, a Q3. Uh, look, so the summary I get here, Bob Profusek, is you've got some optimism into the second half but boy you got some distractions in washington yeah that, that that's right um yeah. we, we live in an environment where we're constantly bombarded by yeah. what's happening in these na national capitals it's just it, yeah. it we we're of course here so we think about washington but it's not just washington Very politics good. is is it in everything we're doing right now okay. bob previously thank you um, so much Durable goods, I would suggest, is more important than usual on Wednesday. Well, let's talk to Lindsay Piazza about it, we shall should. we? We should. Dr. chief economist. Stiefel's chief economist. It's a blur of data, Lindsay, and we all agree this time is different. What is different about your day-to-day -day analysis this week of America's economy? Well, I, I think it's increasingly important because we know the Fed is watching the data. And as they told us at the latest FOMC meeting, they're poised and ready to make a change in policy, but they're not yet convinced, meaning that they do acknowledge some of the weakness bubbling underneath the surface, but they'd really like to see more evidence of that slowdown. And so the Fed is going to be watching yeah. each and every data point that we get between now and the July meeting with increased scrutiny. If we get, uh, you know, my father would call it a moldy number, if we get a really bad number, Aren't they hugely advantaged to get out front with a rate cut immediately so they're not pressured with a 50 basis point foolishness the end of the month? Well, they, they are. But at the same time, the Fed is not going to adjust policy based on one data point. Agreed. So they're going to be looking at the underlying trend. And has the trend in the data been deteriorating for quite some time? I would argue yes. But Fed officials don't quite seem as convinced as I am, or certainly well, not as convinced as the market is. John, on your sabbatical, we did have some constructive data points on income and spending. I mean, they weren't bang up, but to That's the good. Fed's point, there's been a few constructive data points. So I've spoke to some people at Morgan Stanley recently, Lindsay, and one thing they worry about is corporate margins and how companies will respond to the threat of smaller corporate margins and whether they'll pull the lever that says cut the labor force. Lindsay, are you seeing any sign of that happening at the small and medium-sized company level? Any signs of job cuts starting to emerge in this economy? Oh, I, I think all we need to look at is last month's uh, employment report, and there's very clear indication that businesses are having uh, an increased difficult time. 
passing on increases in costs directly onto the consumer. And so they're having to circumvent a lot of that pressure by finding ways to reduce costs at home, meaning find those cost efficiencies in many cases, meaning layoffs or lower wages or both. And I do think that this is going to be an ongoing trend that we continue to see, particularly if we don't see the latest in trade negotiations actually pan out into an extended truce or some right. sort of long-term agreement. At 10%, businesses were able to eat that cost increase. Right. At 25%, this is going to be increasingly difficult. Lindsay, walk us through durable goods. I say this because I think durable goods and inventories are what I would call secondary or indeed tertiary market economic data points that no one cares about until they do care about it. Right now is one <laughs> of those times. Walk us through how you interpret these longer than three-year goods in America? Well, I, I think durable goods uh, investment is always an important indication. Uh, it's uh, certainly from a corporate standpoint. But I would I would say that we really need to get into the weeds when we're looking at the durable goods well, report. Well, get into the weeds. Yes, is important. But we really need to look at durable goods, um, ex-transportation, so excluding aircraft uh, production, and that is a proxy. That's a proxy for corporate investment when we look at that isolated component. And what we see is that corporations, yes, are still investing. But again, when we look at capital goods, excluding aircraft and defense, I should say, this really gives us an underlying sense of whether or not businesses are willing to invest. And we continue to see this uh, very minimally positive trend. So again, corporate dollars still being put to work, but this really highlights a hesitancy and a really a, a heightened level of uncertainty when we look at the longer-term trajectory for the economy. When businesses are feeling confident, when they're happy about the growth prospects of the economy or their particular sector, they're very willing to loosen those corporate purse strings and put capital to work. On the flip side, when they're not confident and they're concerned about the prospects for the U.S. economy, they pull back. And what we have been seeing is very minimally positive months of investment or outright negative business investment. Right. So this is something also that the Fed is watching yeah. at. Thanks if corporations the, aren't investing, they're not hiring. Right. Thank you for the uh, briefing. Dr. Piegza with Stiefel uh, this morning. Tech stocks are rallying uh, before the market opens here. We had some, uh, you know, on the on the news coming out of uh, Osaka that perhaps the U.S. and China will be going back to the negotiating perhaps. table. That helps our good friends out in Silicon Valley, uh, particularly the, the the guys at Apple Computer, the folks at Apple. Uh, Dan Ives is a managing director covering all things TMT for uh, FBR Capital Markets. Uh, and, and Dan, just give us a sense. First of all, thanks so much for joining us. But give us a sense of what you think this could mean for Apple, because Apple's kind of been... I guess the poster child for uh, tech regulation or tech tariffs. Yeah, they're the poster child, especially in the U.S.-China trade battle. And, you know, the street, there's a mini yelling fire in a crowd theater. And I'd say about two dollars of earnings has almost been taken off the, the street's whisper number. And I think when you look at what happened, this is a Goldilocks scenario for Apple. And we believe ultimately it could add about $20 per share to the name over the coming months if the China ultimately ends up the bark's worse than a bite. So it's interesting. When you think about Apple and the tariff scenario, they kind of got 
hit by a double whammy, i.e. they sell almost 20% of their revenue comes from China, plus they manufacture the phones and the pads and the, all that kind of stuff in China. So, you know, it really was a big issue for them. So how do you think they're going to kind of adjust to what might be easing discussions here? Are they going to turn back kind of their let's build stuff outside of China scenario? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, that's sort of the key. I mean, we, we believe that was a poker game. And ultimately, even best case, 5 to 7% production could go to an India or Vietnam in the next 18 months. If this $325 billion of tariffs never happen, they do not move in one iPhone out of China. And ultimately, I think they could even double down there, as you're seeing with Mac production now moving to China. So that's key on the supply chain and the demand side. I think the street is still a glass half empty in terms of what's going to come out of China from the demand perspective. Is there a pro-quality, yeah. almost nationalistic view? So that's why right now we believe this is a major step in the right direction, still more wood to chop. With all the gloom on Apple, is it a gloom where they lose market share or is it an industry softness? Which is it? I think right now the smartphone industry, you've seen it go into maturity. And I think right now the question for Apple is, can that incremental growth come out of China? Look, 20% iPhones over the next 12 to 18 months are going to come out of China. So I think partially it's Apple-specific, but then there is a broad view of the sector. Right. And that's why right now for them, services is key to that value. Okay, but we believe in but, Dan, what's so important here is what I'll call margin elasticity. Do they have the ability to manipulate on unit and price to maintain margins, even if there is a China slowdown? Well, if there's a significant China slowdown, it definitely is going to hurt them. But I do think they have flexibility from a price perspective in yeah. China to stimulate demand. And for a company that generates $60 billion in free cash where they have that flexibility, and that's right now what investors are focused right. on when it comes to China. Well said. And Paul Sweeney, this is incredibly important because I think to a lot of our listeners, they don't understand, I don't understand, the, the mix, as they say in the conference calls, between unit sales and price. And always that's a mystery, isn't it? Yeah, particularly I mean, now that Apple doesn't uh, disclose uh, the unit sales like they used to. So guys, uh, folks like uh, Dan Ives, you know, put a, make, makes their job a little bit more difficult. So Dan, one of the issues that I think investors had with this whole trade tension issue and tariff issue is that the, what, what, you know, the Huawei risk for Apple, i.e. that China puts Apple on some blacklist and that really would impact Apple. Do you think that is off the table or still on the table? Yeah, we, we continue to look. That was a conspiracy theory where you're going to see people in the streets uh, putting iPhones on fire, which we thought was never going to happen. And now that basically gets put to rest, in our opinion, which is that's the first step. Next step is obviously no tariffs, and then it comes down to demand. That's why if you're, at, if you're Tim Cook last night, you're popping the champagne. It's interesting. The uh, you know, I, Do you think Apple's still going to move ahead with – you know, maybe greater urgency on contingency plans, even if uh, we don't have a, an issue in the near term. It, it's, it seems like this might be a long-term risk for Apple and other tech players. Look, I think they have essentially bet the farm with Foxconn in China. And given the supply chain, when you look at Vietnam or India or Brazil, that is not a good alternative for them. They might take 2 3% 
and put into other countries. But realistically, for now, yeah. I would equate how Apple views it as no different than Ford or GM moving out of Detroit if they ever moved out of China. Uh, give us your price target, Dan Ives, again on Apple. I just want to get that. Yeah, right. 235 price target, and we continue to think this this is a name that has significant upside here. Uh, thanks so much. Dan Ives weaving with us uh, today uh, on uh, Apple. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.